harder to come and lead us in worship and he's interested in coming and uh, leading us in praise and worship. So we're really excited about that. Anyway, um, the, the price is uh, there, and it's furnished. The whole building, everything, everything stays there. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Uh, it provides us room to grow. I don't know if you've looked at the uh, display over there, but the whole second story is not finished. It's available to grow into. Um, opportunity. Yeah. The opportunity is limited. Limitless in the sense of whatever God wants to do through. 
it is on the busiest corridor in Arkansas. I don't know if you realize this, but the Highway 412 entrance into Arkansas is the number one entrance as far as population for the whole state. We have more traffic to go through this area than anywhere in the whole state. And if we ended up out there in that location, okay, we would be the third church, third Southern Baptist church that would be on Highway 412 from this end of Arkansas to that side of Arkansas. So, uh, this would allow us to do ministry the way we need to. Uh, we are tight here. I mean, we, you know, we've kind of already outgrown this facility, uh, especially our children's uh, area there, the nursery and the preschool, uh, they're busting in. And uh, we'll fill up here and we kind of go back down and fill up and go back down. So, uh, it would allow us to do ministry the way we want. The other thing I thought as we talked about this, it fits our personality because of where it's located. Uh, someone made the comment, I thought it was kind of a cute comment, they called it the River Ranch Church. You know? And I thought, you know, that kind of makes sense because we are uh, dealing with people who work in that environment. You know? And so we kind of fit it. What could we do there? All kinds of things. Concern. Uh, people have brought up the idea of the distance. Oh, here we got to travel. Well, you guys travel here. I, I, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but uh, for those of us in Denton, Concord, you know, Watts, Westville, um, Stillwell, all of that, you know, uh, some people it's going to be a little bit further. Some people it's going to be a little bit shorter. Some people it's going to be the same distance. So, it, you know, if we, I, I put it like this: if we provide an environment that allows you to invite your friends to come because you want them to come and see. Not Mosaic, but to come and see what God is doing. People will come. It's just not a word for them. There are churches all over the place that are out in the middle of nowhere that uh, have full uh, services. There's a church uh, east of Harrison. I always wondered where it was, and I finally passed it one day, followed my uncle to his cabin, and it was called the Brand New Church. And I've heard a lot about the Brand New Church, but, and I knew it was located out in the middle of nowhere. Distance could be a concern, but uh, if it's if it's a place that is available and useful, uh, then there's a lot more we can do with it. Uh, you know, we moved from the camp up to here, and people kind of like storefront, really storefront. I mean, how's the church going to grow? In the it's not been easy. The church has done it, and we have grown through this process. Uh, like I said, the finances be fifteen hundred dollars a month more, and it will that will continue to grow as we. cool thing about that is I did talk to people out there. I met with them a few weeks ago. Sunday following church, asking them their concerns for questions, shared with them our concerns and what we were doing. And they are interested in growing that church. The ones that are still there. And I heard them, I met with 12 of them. And they would like to stay into the church. And people have said, well, that's going to be kind of weird. We're moving into a church where they, you know, own it. And then we're going to own it. 
love the idea that when we would go in there, we would go in there and we would run it like we said. Now that brings up another concern. Change. Oh no. Change. Nobody likes change. We don't like change. We've only been here almost two years and we don't like change. People are going, well, I'm just now getting used to this place, you know. Well, we were just getting used to the camp and the shuffle back and forth. And, and we have places to put things. But, you know, also in the way we do ministry, we're going to change. It, it's going to create uh, problems, but they're not really problems. We need to find solutions. Because there are things that we're not doing now that we really need to be doing to grow those up. And that would provide us ways to do that. The other thing is, is uh, you know, change doesn't come easy. Uh, I'm going to share a couple of things with you. You know, Abraham, when God called Abraham to leave his family and go to a place that God was going to show him. And he didn't show him where the place was. He goes, you just walk, and, and when you get there, I'll let you know. It wasn't easy, because Abraham had to go through war. He, he fought battles with his tribe, his, all of the people that went with him, his nephew Lot and, and their servants and all that, had several different battles on the way there. It wasn't easy. Israel. You know, Abraham founded the Promised Land. They went back to Egypt. God grew a nation out of Egypt, and they traveled into the land. And when they got to the border of the Promised Land, God said, go. They said, no, because they were afraid because there are giants in there. There are people living in there. I don't know if we should go in. And what did God do? Punish us for 40 years. Walking around in the wilderness. Because two people said, hey, we can do this. Ten people said, no, we can't. And here's the other idea. When they went in, it wasn't easy. They had to get the battle of Jericho. Remember that song going up and down? They went to the battle of, of Ai and got their butt kicked and, and uh, had to regroup and go, God, what, what did you do wrong? But God led them step by step into conquering the land, even with the difficulties and problems that they have, that they still face today. So I understand it's not going to be an easy road. It's not an easy road, whatever it is. The church of Acts, when, when Jesus said, hey, stay here in this upper room, stay in this, oh, this upper room, but stay in this room until uh, the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit comes, then I want you to travel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the other most parts of the world. And what did God have to do to get them out of Jerusalem? He had to have caused persecution to come. He allowed persecution to come, which caused them to fled, to flee, and, and to carry the gospel wherever they went. And they asked for boldness. So I understand change is never easy. And change is not going to be easy for us. Um, and so I'm sure you may have more concerns. I'm sure you may have more reasons of why we need to do this. But these are some of the things that we've talked in member meetings that um, what can we do, where can we go, how can we do this. And so I just want to encourage you, again, you need to be praying about this, that God help, help us become like-minded, that God helps us to have uh, the vision, the ideas that He will continue to show us step by step. And I can't bring you a full plan because I don't know what that full plan looks like. It's like uh, uh, Joshua 
I can tell you everything's going to be all right, you know. But I do know this: if God's in it, which I believe that He is, that He is going to lead us right where we need to go. Struggles and all, but understand this: it's not about this present day and age. It's about eternity. It's about reaching and leading them into growing up. So think about that, and, and I want you to spend some time really praying about it. Maybe even fasting and, and see what God has for us. All right, Josh, would you give us that uh, video? I'll be right back. We were reenacting how Al and I first met. I didn't think about this. I should do that first. Yeah, right. <laughs> you don't know Al. Al is the deputy sheriff for... County, and he's also a chaplain. And he is 
helping us as well. Appreciate that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 5. Thumb there. And uh, today we start a, a series free. And uh, I'm real excited about this series. It'll be a four part series. You know, it's difficult to solve the problem when you don't know what the problem is. Remember when I was young and dumb, computers came out, and I'd have a computer problem, wouldn't work. I'd pull off the side panel, I'd look into it, rub my forehead, and call a student to come help me. Actually, call a student to come fix it. So, and that student now runs a company where he fixes computers. You know, so um, because I had no clue what was going on in there, didn't know how a computer worked. Give me a car, a motor, you know, I could pop the hood, climb in there with a pair of pliers and a screwdriver, and fix it. But uh, here, I had no clue what was going on. Now, some of us, some of us, have been trying to solve us for a long time. Some of you have been um, trying to solve you for a long time. You know, your spouse sent you to talk to someone to solve you because... They're saying, get it fixed or I'm gone. Because you're a problem. And you have tried the theory of what's wrong with me, but it's it's not like you haven't tried. You know, others have tried to solve you as well. Some of you have paid good money for somebody to solve you. And you have lost friends and spouses, maybe even jobs, because you couldn't solve you. You've lost sleep. You've lost self-esteem, you've lost reputation, maybe a child, a relationship. You know it needs to be solved, but you haven't had any luck in solving you. Maybe the reason you can't solve you is because you don't know what's wrong. You know, the problem may be that you don't know what the problem may be. Today I'm going to tell you uh, what one of our New Testament writers, Paul, shares with us. And he says, this is your problem. And then for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the solution that he gives us. Now, if you're not a Bible person, you may not agree with the writer's explanation of what's wrong with you, which means his solution may hold no interest at all. But to assure you to, that he understands and he knows uh, that he knows you actually better than you think. This was him before he discovered what we're going to discuss over the next three weeks. In, in Romans chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to show you this. Paul writes it this way. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Look at the next verse. For now, now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. This could be any law. This could be the Bible law. This could be whatever religion you're from law. This could be the law of society. It could be your own internal law. You may not be religious. You may be religious, but there's something that guides you in what you should and shouldn't do. Here's the strange thing about it. And I know we've never met a lot of it, but the idea is that, don't let me offend you here, but the idea is, here's what I know about you. You don't even do what you think you should do. 
right? You have this thing of where, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I have this internal sense of the thing that I should be doing, but I don't do it. It's like there's two of you inside of you. And, and here's what I ought to do. I'd be better off. I'd be healthier. You know, I'd be a better husband. I'd be a better father. I'd be a better person. You've driven home at those nights and going, oh, I can't believe I did this again. But here's what I ought to do. And then there's just like this other part of you that just does what you should not do. The Apostle Paul is about to tell us now what he thinks. Now let me tell you why we should take him seriously. Because Paul hung around Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They hung around people who were with Jesus. He, he actually listened to the teachings of Jesus. And as he listened to them and talked about what Jesus taught, and as he spent time with the followers of Jesus, he arrived at some extraordinary conclusions about what your problem is and my problem is and the solution. And he ties it back to the struggle that we can all relate to. Look at the next verse, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the, the what? I have the desire to do what is right, but not the what? Ability, right? The ability to carry it out. You know, if you don't believe in the Bible, you can actually go, wow, I actually have read something now that I'm I actually read something now that I could agree with. I don't do what I think I should do. I mean, imagine what church would be like. Understanding this. I mean, we'd sing a couple of songs, a couple of cool songs, we'd come together, and then all I have to do is get up on stage and go, Stop! Quit doing that! This minute, you can go. Wouldn't it be that simple? I mean, you wouldn't need a notebook, you wouldn't need your Bible, you need a 3 by 5 card. Stop this. Start doing this, and always do this. It'd be that simple. So, why don't we do that? I mean, think about it. Some of you that have pets, you can train your dog. You can house train your dog, okay, from doing bad things. You can stop all their bad behaviors. You can do that. But why can't we teach ourselves? I mean, why don't you just quit losing your temper? Why don't you just quit lying to your husband or your spouse? Why don't you just quit eating so much? Why don't you just quit being unfaithful? Why don't you just forgive and go on? Why don't you just quit looking at all that stuff, including your mind and storing your relationship? You know, stop it, is what we could say, and you'd be dismissed. Now, why is that? I bet you have a theory. You know, Christians have a theory, and Paul explains it. Now, he's not easy to understand, but, but here we go, because you're not the average congregation, all right? You're really smart. You're really wise. And, and so I think you'll get there. In... Um, Romans chapter 5, he says this. Romans chapter 5, we'll pick up in uh, verse 6. For while we were still weak, maybe a better word there would be powerless, okay? While we were weak, or while we were powerless, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. And here's our first speaker. Because... In order to understand, okay, the problem that we're dealing with, we have to understand that the solution is you. You have to acknowledge the reality that Paul describes it. And you have to acknowledge the, re the reality of you. Paul says that even though he hasn't met you, okay, 
that you're ungodly. Now, let me explain it this way. We wouldn't say that we're ungodly. That's a little rough. We, we would say something like, well, we're human. We're imperfect, right? We're imperfect. Not we're ungodly like the, the worst person in the world. We're just imperfect. Let's take the, the prefix M and let's change it to un. You're unperfect. And we understand that God, no matter what religion you serve, is perfect. Even if God is spirit, he is perfect. And you're unperfect. So therefore, you're unlike God. You're ungodly. Got it? So turn to somebody, hopefully somebody you don't know, and tell them that they're ungodly. Okay, just one person. All right, got it? Ready? Go ahead. Tell them that they're ungodly. Because everybody needs to know this. All right? You're ungodly, not because, wait a minute, just one person, just one person. You don't have to keep going on, all right? It's not that you're the worst person in the world, but you're ungodly. Every world religion considers God, even if God is pure spirit, perfect in perfection of everything, okay? And some people that really don't get the Bible would say, well, that's what I would expect somebody from church to say for ungodly. But understand, you know, those of us that believe, our book tells us we're ungodly. So we're actually all on the same plane field. All right? We're all on the same plane field. Look at this. Christ died for who? The ungodly. Now that's kind of odd. I mean, and, and Paul says it this way in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? I mean, how many times have you known anybody that laid down their life for a really good person? I mean, very seldom do we hear something like that. Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare die. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. Very rarely will you hear someone lay down their life for a good person. Look at verse 8. But God says this in verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were what? sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this is quite literal. Paul here, as he's writing this, is only about 25 years after the death of Christ, the crucifixion. So there are people that know about the death of Christ. There are people that understand that there was this big crucifixion, there was this big uproar, there was Barabbas who was set free. And so the idea that this audience that he's writing to understands that Christ died for us. Sinner. Yeah, Paul is saying that you're ungodly. You're an ungodly sinner. And I understand that that's strong language. But how did we get this way? How did we get to be ungodly? Well, I'm glad you Because here's where it gets critical. Here's where it gets really important. Unless you know where you are, you can't fix the problem. Unless you understand where we are, we won't know where to begin. So look at verse 9. He says this. Since therefore, when you see the word therefore, you actually should see why it's therefore. We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Justified by his blood. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, Okay, that's a pretty strong word. 
For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we may be reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And, and I think this is a really... Uh, let's go on to verse 11. And then verse 12 is what More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received reconciliation. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as what? Sin came into the world through what? Through one man. And death through sin. And so death separates or is spread to what? All men. Because what? All sin. Now, you've experienced this because in your life, you've had a really bad habit. You've had an addiction. You've seen death that follows your sin. You've killed a relationship. Uh, you've killed your finances. You've killed a career. You've killed your reputation. You know, you've killed something with your parents. Maybe somebody actually physically killed or injured somebody because of your own sin. He said wherever sin goes, death is right behind it. The reason you know that you're ungodly, the, the reason that you know that you're ungodly is because you're dying. That's how you know. Because when sin entered the world, right on the heels of sin was death. And Paul's explanation of the relationship between sin and death and why we can't seem to do what we want. So, as he refers to, Adam sinned. Okay? Sin entered the world. On the heels of sin came death. And then he goes on. And he says this. And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. Now, Paul speaks of sin not as a verb. We think of sin as a verb, as an action that we've been doing. But Paul actually speaks of sin here as a noun, as an object. Uh, sin entered the world like a virus through a host. Because sin was in the first man, Adam, as we'll see, as he refers to later, because sin had entered into Adam, the first man, it spread to all men. This is evidenced by death because sin results in death. And how do you know that you're ungodly, a helpless sinner? Because you're dying. So think of it like this. Sin came into the world. This is me, all right? And because of the sin of Adam, I was born into sin, all right? Now, this is my wife. This is my kids. They're in sin, okay? This is, uh, what about Franklin Graham? You know, or what about uh, Billy Graham? Were you born in sin? Yes, I was born in sin, he would say. What about Mother Teresa? You know, you ask her, hey, w were you born in sin? She'd go, yeah, I was born in sin. What about Franklin Graham? sisters, you know? Yeah, they were born in sin. You know, what about your grandkids? Yep, they were born in sin. What about, you know, other people? Yeah, they were born in sin because we see all kinds of bad things happen in the world. They were born into sin. Okay? So which we would go, wow. It was just as Adam, because Adam was the first man, there was a sense in which we were all in Adam. And he explains this later. So what Adam did, we did because we were in Adam. Because he was the first person 
And through Adam, sin entered into the world. And because we're all in Adam, we're all in sin. Everybody was in sin. Now, look at it like this. You might even be a precious grandmother, okay? Or, you know, you're young and you're going to be a precious grandmother. You're still in sin. Meaning all people from their sin, from their sin, stain, sin-stained nature, and sin-stained us, and we have all sinned, then we bring judgment upon ourselves. They were born with the capacity, with the vent, and then acted on it early. We, we know that. We understand that about when our kids are about one and a half. All of a sudden, they start, you know, rebelling. They start raising that. You didn't have to teach that kid how to sin. It just happened naturally, didn't it? I mean, you don't have to put a thing up on your mirror that reminds you today you should sin. You don't have to do that. It just happened. And so as, as we begin to see this, meaning all people, this comes naturally. You were born a sinner. And you would say, well, that's not fair. Well, it's not fair. But fair ended in the garden, right? Fair ended in the garden. Some of you have been in difficult situations. Maybe you've held a baby that's had a disease. Maybe that disease came from irresponsible parents. And you go, well, that's not fair. And it's not fair. You know, something may have happened to you in your life, and you're like, well, that's not fair. But it's not fair. But fair ended in the garden. It's not fair, but it's true. It's not fair, but it's true. We were born condemned and then condemned ourselves by our own actions. Our problem goes deeper than a habit. It goes deeper than a behavior. As long as I'm trying to solve me by addressing my habits and my behaviors, I'm never going to solve the problem. My habits and my undesirable behaviors are merely an expression of my sin. What about my beautiful wife? Yep. And so as we begin to go into this, as long as I deal with me from the standpoint of being a good person who does bad things, I'll never deal with the root of the problem. Now, it makes sense that a bad person might do a good deed, right? Every now and then, you know, a bad person would do a good deed, especially if it benefited them. So, as you think about that, why does a good person do bad things? Why would a good person do bad things? It's like there's something in you that controls you. You know, you've probably said this. Okay, I know your mom has said, I don't know why I get into that boy. Paul would go, I do. You know, you look at somebody and you go, I don't know why I get into that boy. You go, and Paul would go, but I do. It's like there's something in there that controls them. It's like Paul says that it's more than a behavior. Sin is a power. You know that. Because you understand that there are times when the urge to do wrong is so powerful, so powerful, that it seems as if it is your will. When did we sin? Not in our lifetime. We all sin. When Adam sinned. We all sin. And now he begins to draw a contract. This is where sometimes we lose focus because it gets so complicated. But here it goes. Look at verse 13. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. Right? I mean, 
Adam, being the first man in the garden, sin entered into the world. But the law did not come until a few books later, right? Moses, when he was leading the people out, we don't know how much time has passed, but quite a bit of time has, has passed. And so the idea that sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. I mean, there was sin, and people were doing wrong, and the Bible refers to it. Uh, man did what was right in his own eyes. So he goes on and he says, Nevertheless, look at the next verse. Nevertheless, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of person of one who is to come. Look at this, verse 15. But the free what? Gift is not like the trespass. He shows us a contrast here. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 17, he talks about the gift being the righteousness. The trespass, we understand, is Adam's sin dragged us in. For if many died by the trespass of one man, remember sin is a result of death, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? If a mere man could pollute the whole gene pool, what could God do through a man God, Jesus. Look at verse 16. And if the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses have brought justification. So what one man did, okay, what it looks like right now, it looks like we can't do what we should do. We can't do what we think that the law wants me to do. I can't please God. I can't please myself. I can't please my mom. The implications of moving from Adam into Christ is not just about what happens when you die. It's about a way of living, a lifestyle, here and now. To which we say, well, you're just going to tell me to try harder. No. Because it isn't about what you try. It's about what is true of you and about what has now become true of you. Verse 17. If by one man's trespass, death reigns, through one man, much more than those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So let's let's say these two words together. When it says reign in what? Not in heaven, but in, say that with me, in, okay, living here and now. Not just heaven, okay, not just when I get here. What, what he's saying is, is Paul is comparing what Jesus did to what Adam did. And what we're talking about is some kind of fundamental change that happens in we're talking about a source code, not a behavior. We're, Jesus did something so fundamental that addressed sin in you. 
Look at, look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so what? One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Here's what he's saying. Adam did something wrong, and it affected everyone. Jesus did something right, and it has undone what Adam did. Adam did one thing that resulted in condemnation for all, and were born in Adam. Jesus, in one act of obedience that mirrors, that overpowers the one act of disobedience, has provided a way for us. Not simply to go to heaven when we die, but to live a new kind of life. You've heard those words or phrases before. You, you know what it's like. Um, and what does it mean? Paul says, I know it's complicated, but, but bear with me. Because it's so important, it's so significant. So he wraps it up like this in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many, talking about us, were made what? Sinners. And so by the one man's disobedience, the many, or by one man's obedience, so by one man's obedience, talking about Jesus Christ being obedient to the cross, the many will be what? A Christ. So, here's my wife. You know, she's not a sinner all together. But she's in Christ. Okay? There, there was a time when, when she turned her life over to Christ. And wanted to be a more like me. Here's me being in Christ. It, it, it's a new kind of life. It, it's not something that uh, uh, you know that I've changed. It's what Christ is changing in me. It, it's what He's given me. His life. He, he's exchanged His perfect life for a sinful life. I mean, He who knew no sin, the Bible says became sin. And then he offers us his sinless life. And so by being in him, we get a new life. We get to change. So, he goes on and he says in verse 19 there, also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. For you weren't when you were in Adam in sin. But you weren't when Christ died for all of your sins. Conclusion. It's difficult to solve a problem when you don't know what the problem is. But Paul says the problem is much deeper than a behavior, much deeper than a habit. It is sin, a noun, that resides in you. But now if you're a Christian, you're like, Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz. She gets to the end of the movie, and it's like, the good witch tells her, you've had it the whole time. What was she to do? Put her heels together, right? It's, it's like, you know, if you're a Christian, it's like Frodo. You, you have that ring, okay? You know a little bit about that ring, and as the movie goes on, the series goes on, you discover, and he discovers more and more. It's like Elizabeth Swan, where you know that it's more than just a gold medallion. And she discovers that there's so much more. There is something that you may not know about, but the more that you 
walk with me, the more you'll know. Paul's audience didn't know either. He, he actually begins the next section with, don't you know? And we'd respond like, I didn't know. And he'll go on to explain it, and he'll say, don't you know? And you're going, now I don't even know, okay? You've explained it, but I still don't know. So we'll look at it next week as we get into it.